blood pouring out of the bowl. <laughs> Stuff like that. Interesting backdrop. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be great. A couple others getting baptized as well. So hopefully you'll be able to come back and celebrate with us next week. So anybody else want to share? You know, just uh, big things, small things, recent things, past things that God's brought you realization of. It's a story of his grace and goodness. Winetta. Yes, and Micah takes quick credit for saving his sister's life <laughs> by jumping on her at the pool. So, good thing most of the kids who could make the wrong conclusions from that are FNK kids <laughs> there too. So, no, it's great. This is very, very thrilling. I'm grateful that she's doing better. Anybody else? Kevin. <laughs> and it was hosted by Don and Bill, uh, Don is Diane's sister, and we had a taste of sight for this. Um, we had live music, we had catered food, it was delicious beyond air, and we had a great day. Today, we're not going to recreate it, but we have another opportunity to celebrate it. Um, thank God that we have health, and we have the ability to do things that are enjoyable and <laughs> um, I just want to thank the Lord because in the last year and a half, we've had a lot of pain and a lot of loss. And it's been really hard. But I'm so grateful to the Lord for His Thanks. That was beautiful. I'm sure Kevin would agree. <laughs> Anybody else? Tammy?
Awesome. Thanks, Tammy. Anybody else? Jill? Kind of a standing order of the day. Thanks. Anyone else? Big, small, in between. Old, new. Something borrowed, something blue. Something like that. Nope. All right, Jared. take a look together at the book of Haggai and I asked uh, Tammy to read that for us so you can turn there in that black Bible in front of you. Do follow along. I think it's going to be really helpful 
for a number, number of reasons. Uh, I don't have all of the verses up here. Number one, we'll probably spill over into chapter two as well. So I think it's just going to be good to have that in front of you. Um, not necessary, but good. So do you know what page it's on? Nine thirty-seven. If you don't know where that falls, you can turn there. And Tammy, come on up and read that for us. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labors of your hands. Then, then uh, Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Jerezebel, son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Tammy. So I want to talk today about the message that Haggai is giving, obviously, to, to these people. Just two short chapters. So a shorter book. Hopefully you were able to read it in advance. And the overall theme, um, hopefully Haggai would agree with this conclusion, is that, that the story isn't over yet. Now that's a phrase maybe you've heard before. Uh, I don't know how long it's maybe been in your own vocabulary. But it's a helpful phrase, one that's been particularly helpful for me. Uh, along the way, and I think especially since church planting, you know, se seven years ago, just remembering that God is weaving something together and doing it often in mysterious ways, and that he's not finished telling those, those stories, that there's a process, that there's some place that we're headed. 
Um, it's been helpful for me individually. It's been helpful certainly as a family. We still try to hold on to that in mysterious times. Uh, like I said, in, in ministry and even just in the world sometimes. Like what is going on? And I don't understand. So, so having kind of reducing it to something that I can wrap my mind around has been helpful for me personally. And in, in the book of Haggai, what he seems to be saying is that uh, if you feel uh, short-sighted or stuck, then you have to remember that the story isn't over yet. That's what it was like for these people, as we're going to see, because they were short-sighted. They weren't thinking beyond the scope of how things were in the moment, and they were stuck. They weren't able to move forward. And there were reasons why that was the case that we're going to explore. And the first, first one that seems uh, pretty obvious here, if you feel stuck, maybe this morning, is to remember that the story isn't over yet, and it might be time to re-examine your priorities. It could be that somewhere along the way, things have gotten a little off-center, and you feel stuck because you haven't rightly prioritized matters, things, what, what matters most in life. If you read the, the uh, reading the Bible along with us, you read through the book of Ezra as well, and actually Ezra mentions Haggai. Back in chapter 4, verse 24, and, and chapter 5, verse 1 of Ezra, he says, the, you know, the exiles had kind of come back, and they were beginning the process of rebuilding, and Haggai was one of the two, along with Zechariah, prophets who were uh, speaking to them during that time. King Darius was allowing those in captivity to return. So the Babylonian Empire had fallen, and now King Darius takes over, and he has a different policy. He wants to earn some favor with the people who had been under the Babylonian kingdom and says, hey, you can go back. And he wanted to you know, have a good name for them, get some, some good rapport with these people, and begin rebuilding and, and going back to the place where you were before. Um, and that's what King Darius does. So that's King Darius's mindset. Now we know, if you've been reading along with us, that God himself had said through previous prophets, you're going to be there for 70 years, then you're going to come back. So God's telling this story, and he's using people and places and personalities to kind of move that to fulfill the purpose that he has for them. And that's exactly what's happening here. The story isn't over yet, though. And... For these people, they've gotten a little bit complacent, it seems. By the time Haggai prophesies, they've returned, and they've built their own houses. It's been 16 years now, and uh, they've got some, you know, they've got some neighborhoods that have been built, and they've got uh, mortgages uh, that they're going to start paying off and that kind of thing as well. Their houses are at least complete, but God's house is not. So here they come back, and um, things seem to be going pretty well, but the central aspect of, of what they're supposed to orient life around, God's temple, which had been destroyed, is nothing but a small altar. And they'd done a little bit of work, but not much. They were focused instead on what they were doing, building their own houses, you know, moving back to their old neighborhoods and reacquainting themselves with life back in Jerusalem. And Haggai is speaking to the people that day and telling them, hey, things aren't finished. You know, there's still some stuff that's undone. And the appeal he makes multiple times to them is right up there. 
Five times he tells them, give careful thought to your ways. And he does that twice uh, in chapter 1, verse 5 and 7, also in chapter 2, 15, and twice in chapter 2, verse 18. So, uh, you know, when you're reading Hebrew literature and something is repeated, it's very important. So Haggai's telling them, you have to spend some time giving thought and reflection on what you're doing, on how you're conducting things. Because something's a little off. What does he mean? In chapter 1, verse 9, he says, look, when you came back, you expected much. But see, it turned out to be little. What, what, what you brought home, I blew away. So they made this journey back, and they came, and they said, there's new beginnings. You know, it, it, maybe some of them said, we're moving to a better neighborhood. We know that piece of land, and now it's, we're going to claim it. And we've got these wonderful plans for the future. And God said, it didn't amount to hardly anything, really. It, it just kind of left away. I mean, there's houses, but something's missing still. It's a new chapter. The beginning of what could be a booming economy, good economic times. The prospect of return to the familiar. But they aren't making much progress. Why? And God answers. He says, why? I'm going to tell you why. Because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. That was the fundamental issue. I mean, yeah, the story isn't over yet, but God says you're not making a lot of progress in that storyline because you've forgotten what matters most. My house itself still lies in ruins. He's saying you're content with building your own house, but not also with building God's. I mean, that's the fundamental issue that Haggai is telling them. And it doesn't seem to be a stern word against caring for your own stuff, but rather doing it at the expense of having concerns for the interests of God's kingdom. It's not that you can't have a house or, or stuff. It's just that when the priorities of the kingdom are, this still needs to be done, God's house is just an altar. It needs attention to, and you're not paying attention to that because you're thinking of your own stuff. Well, then things are wrongly ordered. You're neglecting the things of God for the sake of building your own kingdom, which frankly is never going to last. It's just you just have no idea how long that's going to last. I mean, you know, we've been with three cars, and it's just like, how does this happen? All of a sudden, they all seem to malfunction at the same time. And, there's, and then you're like, what do we, how do we fix it? What's the cheapest way to fix it? Okay. The cheapest way doesn't work. What's the most expensive way to fix it, apparently? You know, I mean, it's like, what in the world is going on here? Things just fall apart constantly. There's a constant trying to get ahead of all this stuff. And of course you take care of it. You steward it well. But if it's the central thing, something is a little bit off. And people here are saying, hey, look, it's not time yet to focus on anything but our own stuff. I mean, look at verse 2. I, I don't have this up there, but look at verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. So they're saying, look, we can't focus on that stuff because we've got our own things to take care of. Once we get our own things in place, then we'll focus on this stuff. And, of course, these things that you're getting in place, there's never going to be enough. I mean, look at, look at verses 10, 10 and 11. Um, 
Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, the earth and its crops I called for a drought, uh, and whatever the ground produces, a men's cattle, the labor of your hands. They're trying to make progress in these areas, but it's just getting taken away. And the reason that God gives them in verse 9 is this. Where is it? Oh, sorry. Verses, verses, uh, verse 5. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Verse 6. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill, which would be great for microbreweries during that day, right? And people are now, oh, I need more, I need more. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. They're making absolutely no progress whatsoever. Their lives are wrongly ordered. There's a reason they're not seeing much fruit. In life, they're discontent, they're dissatisfied. Basically, they're stuck. They're not making any progress. I mean, so it's kind of funny. It's like we're going to build our own kingdom first, then we'll get to this. And in the process, they're making absolutely no progress, which means they're never going to get to this. And so God is basically saying, look, all that stuff's important. I get it. I give you stuff, you know, to, to manage and steward, but you've neglected this. And until you get this part right, you're not going to find the satisfaction that this stuff's supposed to give you. This is never going to happen. This is like the anti-prosperity gospel, right? The prosperity gospel which just says, you know, if God's going to bless you with all kinds of great things. Um, well, he, he, he might, but they have a lot of great things, but there's emptiness in it, and they're making no progress because they've neglected the, 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 the priority in their lives that rightly orders these things. See, this stuff over here, the material stuff that we get, that's not bad in and of itself. But when it becomes central, when it becomes what's driving us at the, at the expense of what rightly orders it, then it becomes, well, you can't serve two gods, right? Either money or, or God. And if you're serving God, then the money you have is rightly ordered. It's resourced. It's stewarded in the right kind of way. So you might feel stuck. If you feel stuck, it could be that you need to reorder your priorities. And that's not always the case, but it certainly was the case here in the book of Haggai. Haggai is basically saying to these people, you are completely self-consumed. You are so stuck on yourself. And the only way that you can get beyond that is to remember the God who's given you all these things. I mean, to, to reorient, reorient your life, re-examine your priorities. And that's, that's basically what he's calling them to do. So we see it again, the basic call to reprioritize your life. You've neglected the things of God, especially life built around worship. Now remember in the days when, when this would be written that as we went through the, through the Old Testament, all of this community's life was structured around the worship. You know, even the rhythm of the week. So six days you work, great. I mean, we've turned that into five days, most probably, but six days you're working, one day you set aside to worship and to celebrate, to remember. And you do that because God himself rested giving us a pattern of what it looks like to be fully human. 
So if you're working hard, great, but you need to take a day where you're actually resting. This is how God's designed it. And remembering so that you can reorient the other six days around that central piece. And when that piece is given up or forgotten, then all these other things are wrongly prioritized. So he says you've got to rebuild this altar, you've got to rebuild this house because it is a community that's gathering together, ordered around the God who created them and who gives them the right priorities. God knows that life ordered around him will rightly prioritize and inform absolutely everything else. Not just your stuff, but your trials. And we've heard that already. I mean, hard lives. Who doesn't have one? Who's, we've all got different kind of stories. So what do you do with that? You can be consumed by those or reprioritized. I mean, Psalm 73 is a go-to psalm for me. Asaph struggling with life because people who feel like this is their main priority, okay, this material thing, and maybe they're even bad people and they seem to be prospering. Well, I don't get it. How, how do I understand that? I'm trying to live a good life. And yet things don't seem to be going well. And Angel was talking some about that as well. And it wasn't until he entered the sanctuary, a place of worship, where God reprioritized and said, you know, what you're doing does matter and it is significant. And those things are going to be taken care of. You're doing the right thing. I'm here with you. I'm going to re give you a new understanding of these things that's deeper and richer because the story isn't over yet. And that was true for these people too because he says there's going to be a time of reckoning when all this stuff they were trusting in is taken away and they'll have nothing to stand on. Well, what about you? We sang about it earlier. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I mean, the stuff we have, our health, our lives can disappear in an instant. But not for these people, or at least that's what Haggai wants to remind them, that there's something more than that. You remember Paul? I, I, you know, Paul in the New Testament started unpacking some of this and figuring a little bit of this out. You know, he says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. It doesn't matter if I have a lot or a little bit. I've learned the secret of contentment. It's such an interesting verse for so many reasons. I mean, one is like it takes a little bit of work. He learned it. I mean, what we want is McDonald's, 99 cents, Oh, secret of contentment. I'll order that up after church today. I mean, he learned it. He learned it through the trials and the, and the hardships of life. And he got to a point somehow through that process where he gets to a point where he says, you know what? I have a little bit. I have a lot. I'm content. And somehow he got that. This verse is in the context too. He got to the point where he could say, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That is, my lifestyle is oriented around Christ, who he is, who he says I am, who he says what life is about. That is my life. See how it rightly prioritizes his conclusions about other things? Because my life is Christ and, and he has given me the, the proper perspective, I, all this other side over here, whether I have a lot or little, doesn't matter. I'm content. I'm fully satisfied. Take everything away from me, doesn't matter. I still have Christ. He's my life. All these accolades, all this great stuff that I've done, all the status and reputation means nothing to me because I have Christ. 
So if I'm going to boast in anything, it's going to be in him. This guy was consumed. But it wasn't self-consumed. He was consumed with Christ. And we're all on a journey to kind of embrace and learn what that means. I think that's what we get together in community to do is to say, wow, am I rightly prioritizing? Or is something a little off? Are we learning the secret of being content? You know, for, for me, and this may or may not be a helpful illustration, but when I talk about priorities, people tend to say, you know, God and family and what, sports, whatever your prioritization is, and gets reversed. And, and that, that can be a helpful way to think about things. The, 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 uh, the Bible seems to have a more all-encompassing perspective on, on that, though. So you might picture, like, a wheel with spokes. And I've made reference to this before, but there's a hub in the center, and those spokes go out. And what's in, this, what's in the hub? What's in this, the centerpiece there? It seems like if we're rightly ordering things that God himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit's right there in the center, right? And then these spokes going out are everything else. Family, you know, entertainment, money, whatever the case may be. So that everything you do is informed by that central piece, that hub. It, it, it's, it's not as if I just say, well... I'm spending time with God, so I'm going to forsake my family. No, spending time with your family is informed by what it means to be walking with God. And for these people, something else had been put right into that center. They were self-consumed. It's like our stuff, our rebuilding. And God was maybe a spoke. Possibly. But he wasn't the center. He's saying, you've got to put me back there. Yeah, because you're going to be wrongly ordered. And until you do that, everything is a little off kilter. You're getting stuck. And God says in Haggai, don't get stuck, get stirred. You know, I mean, don't just stop being stuck. Get stirred. Not shaken, but stirred along the way. And that word initially, you know, if you think Haggai comes to two leaders... One of them is a priest named Joshua. The other one is Zerubbabel. Z-man, let's just call him. So Z-man is kind of the main, main figure here along with the priest. They respond well to the appeal. As Haggai says, look, focus on the things of God. This altar needs to be rebuilt. And if you look at, at uh, verse 12, then, then Z-man and Joshua, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of of the Lord their God. They responded to this. And the message of the prophet Haggai. Because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. And this idea of fearing God. Means they've rightly oriented their life around him. When they ask what should I do. They're informed by, by God. The reverence and deep respect. Of him informing everything that they're doing. That's code. For making him the center. The hub. They responded well. And so do the others. They rightly position God in their lives and they get this word of assurance in verse 13, I am with you. And see what happens next. Verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zeman and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. So here's this, there's this stirring, this image of just kind of like Wow, this does matter. We are going to respond. And he, he starts with the leaders, but then it drills down 
to the very people, the remnant, those who are on board, say, yes, we are stirred. We are going to respond to what happens. And that's a great prayer. God, stir my spirit. You know? Stir me toward zeal for the honor of God, and God is honored here. Stir me toward zeal for obedience, doing the things you ask me to do. Stir me toward intentional activities. Stir me toward living out the gospel, the good news, in every context, at home, at school, at work, at play. We can plead for that. In the meantime, we still make the effort to rightly order our lives. It's kind of interesting here. These people respond and they obey and then they get stirred. At least in Haggai's time. So there is some external obedience that happens here. They start doing it. It's, like, it, it's not as if they got stirred and then they started obeying. That can happen too. But in this case, they just started doing what they were supposed to be doing and God used that to stir, us, stir them up and to respond with even, even greater zeal. So it seems that in this case anyway, the right prioritization positions us for the stirring. They, they obey, they rightly prioritize things, and as a result, God stirs them. And it happens different ways throughout history. We've been looking at revival the past few weeks too. And oftentimes as God stirs in people's hearts, they come out with confession and obedience. In this case, it seems that it was kind of a, a different storyline. They obey. They do what they're supposed to. And God stirs them up. And they respond with even greater zeal. Because they've positioned themselves for it. It makes me think of Zacchaeus in the New Testament. This, this guy who was a tax collector. He was wrongly prioritizing life. Probably taking more off the top. Working for the enemies. You know, the Romans during the time of Jesus, and he hears that Jesus is coming to town. And what does Zacchaeus do? He climbs up on a sycamore fig tree. You know, if you grew up in, in going to church and Sunday school, maybe you sang Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. You know, he climbed up in the sycamore to see what he could see. And then, you know, Jesus comes on by and he makes eye contact with him. And what always strikes me about that is that Zacchaeus actually got in a position to see Jesus. I mean, in his case, it wasn't as if he just stayed at home and said, well, if Jesus wants me, he'll come get me. He went to a position where he just said, I want to check this out. And Jesus made eye contact with him and said, I'm coming to your house today. And, and the response of Zacchaeus from his initial contact with Jesus is to say, look, all this stuff that I had before doesn't matter to me anymore. I'm going to give it. If I've cheated anybody, I'm going to pay back. More than even what I took. That is odd. I mean, in our culture, at least, we're trying to find ways to get rebates on items that we actually purchased 20 years ago. Right? Because you can save a little bit of money. Not, not Zacchaeus. He's like, how can I pay back people I've taken from? That's a, that's a changed heart, right? But part of what he did was position himself to encounter Jesus. I think that's some of what happens even when you come into the context of worship. You're positioning yourself. I am too. Just like Zacchaeus will say, okay. God, go ahead. Do, do it. <laughs> Whatever you need to do in me. As we sing, as we pray, as we listen to your word as well. Don't get stuck. Get stirred. Just like Zacchaeus. 
Now, this is a little bit shorter, but the second point of the story isn't over yet. It's just to remember that God finishes what he starts. So they have this, we have this little altar at the end of chapter 1. The people are stirred, and they're going to start doing some more work to complete what wasn't finished yet. If you look at uh, chapter 2, and you start in verse 3, we can see a little bit of what happened. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? And if you read again Ezra, you know that some people, when they came back and they started rebuilding Jerusalem, some people were saying, hey, look, we've done a pretty good job. Look at this altar. We've got our houses. We've got an altar. We're all good. And the people who'd seen it before are weeping because they remember the former glory. Those who maybe had been born during the exile, 70 years, maybe heard some stories, but they come back and say, eh, it's pretty good. Those who knew what it was like before are ripped. You know, their hearts are ripped wide open. These would be older people now. And say, they're weeping. Some people are like, yay! And others are just crying because they remember this isn't what it used to be like. Verse 4, but now be strong, O Z-man, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater then the glory of the former house, says Lord Almighty, and in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. So here's God saying, look, the story's not done yet. For those of you who are weeping, something greater is going to come. And for those of you who think this is um, a lot, I'm just getting started. There's a time when I'm going to shake all this stuff. This is a huge, big, sweeping picture of God's doing something massive. And it's just starting small with this little altar. God finishes what he starts. This is a visual picture, and, and finishes it is, of the way that I'm building my kingdom, he says, and this kingdom is massive, but it looks small right now. You know, Jesus talks about faith as small as a mustard seed, the smallest seed. What can it do? It can do amazing things, it can move mountains. That's how God's kingdom operates, in small ways, in ways that seem insignificant, especially when it seems like everything is stacked up against you. And that's not just true of God's big sweeping history, uh, but even of, of his church, his people who are gathered together, sometimes you feel like this is small and insignificant, but that's where God works. That's where he shows up in his glory. That's where he says, I am honored as you obey me. And that's something we need to remember because you can grow weary of doing good. You can grow weary of being obedient. You can grow weary of trying to constantly reprioritize and rightly order and feel like you're not making any progress at all. But don't grow weary. For at the proper time, you'll reap a harvest. That's what these people were saying. We're, we're, we're reaping, but we're not getting the harvest. And God says, rightly prioritize, and I will do this. 
at the right time in the right way. And sometimes you don't see that in your lifetime or not for a long time. But that's just how God's kingdom works. And these people on this day never quite saw the total fulfillment of what was being discussed. Because even at the end of chapter 2, Z-Man is given this signet ring. You know, look at verse uh, 21. Tell, tell Z-Man, governor of Judah, I will shake the heavens and the earth. I'll overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I'll overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall each by the sword of his brother. And this is the last verse. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. That is a, a signet ring vouching that there's a down payment coming of something that will happen in the future. A day when something cataclysmic occurs. And God ushers in a kingdom unlike any other that's been seen. This has been promised from the beginning, remember, with Abraham. And then along comes David and he says, your throne's never going to leave. And when is this fulfilled? When is all this stuff happening? He's looking forward to a time when that occurs. It shouldn't be a shock to you if you're a student of the Bible. You know what's coming next, don't you? When, when, when Jesus comes, what does he say? The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. He's announcing that the kingdom that was being anticipated has come. And this is maybe no surprise to you. Matthew chapter 1 verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, this is in the genealogy of Jesus. Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Jake, and then it goes on to say, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who's called the Christ. This dude is in the lineage, in the line of Jesus. Way back here at the time of the exiles returning and God saying, there's something small, a little altar that I'm going to make huge one day that will impact nations and reach to the farthest ends of the earth. This spirit that's stirring in you is the spirit that's going to be un unleashed on the world through my son. And every nation, every tribe, every tongue is going to worship at one point. And that comes in the package of a little baby named Jesus who seems kind of small and insignificant. So much so that the first people to respond are the smelly agricultural types, the shepherds, that everybody's written off. And he chooses to honor them because they're humble in heart by saying you're the first ones that are going to get a glimpse of this one who will shake the heavens and the earth. And so when Jesus comes and he, he does that and he says, the kingdom of God, it's, it's in me. I'm the one that was anticipated back then. And so again, like Angel said, you know, there's this reprioritization of life that comes when you just say, I'm on board. It's just maybe even a small yes, like a mustard seed, and I don't understand everything that's going on around me, but yes, Jesus. Yes. Yes to you. So go ahead, start the project. I feel like this tiny altar. <laughs> I'd like to be a big temple for the house of God. It takes some work and time, and it's going to take a little bit of stirring along the way. But yes, that's the posture, that's the positioning, it seems, that allows you to begin that process of seeing how God is bringing his eternal kingdom to bear, not just
in that kind of cosmic way, which is what we often forget. It's big. It's huge. It spans centuries. But drilling it down to the personal level, where it applies to you too, on a daily basis. You need to remember the story isn't over here. God finishes what he starts. Don't you think that's why Paul um, wrote something like, you know, in Philippians? You can be confident of this. He who began a work in you will carry it to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. So yeah, Christ came. He ushered in a new kingdom. And it was started. And it's expanding. It's not finished yet. And you say, I don't get everything because it doesn't seem like all this stuff has happened. Jesus is the down payment. But there's still something we were looking forward to, a time when he comes back. And, he, and all those storylines that are loose and open-ended right now, and you say, I don't know how it's going to finish, he's going to tie up when he returns until the day of Christ. On that day when he comes and he makes everything that is a mess beautiful and complete and whole. And that's the storyline of the Bible, right? That's where we live. So my, my prayer just personally, as, as I've been even digesting this all week, is like, I want to remember that the story isn't over yet, because it is easy to forget. Am I the only one <laughs> that forgets that? Like this, and it's not just the story isn't over yet, so I have hope for the future that things are going to end the way I'd really like them to. As short-sighted and stuck as my, the way I'd like them to probably is, with respect to God's kingdom. It's not just that. It's just that I can't be complacent just because I've got the sense that God's doing these things. There's work to be done. So stir me toward that work. I mean, imagine the impact that just 12 guys walking with Jesus had on the entire world. You think small numbers matter for making a difference? Nah. It's if God's spirit is present. If it's he is stirring in people's hearts. If it's he's the one who's rightly ordering and prioritizing everything. So that, that you know, promise that Jesus says that I'm going to build my church and the, even the gates of hell can't stand up against it. It's something that we need to remember. Not just the big C church universal, but even a little C one. And then the question becomes, well, what's your role in that? You know, how are you being stirred? What if we all leveraged all that we have and rightly prioritized for the kingdom of God. What could be? I don't know. I, I look forward to it though, to seeing, seeing what that's like for you and for me together. Father, I do pray for our hearts, my heart, collectively, ours too, that it stir us. And then we'd remember, probably two sides of a coin really, this message of Haggai 1 and 2. The story isn't over yet. You can't get complacent. You know, you need to be stirred. But also the story isn't over yet. I've got this. You know, I'm, 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 I'm doing something that you cannot see it. Something huge and big. And you need to find some assurance. I am with you through the midst of this. And maybe, maybe for, for some of us, um, both sides of the coin apply. But certainly... Hopefully for all of us, one side does. And whatever that is, I pray we'd latch on to that today. Be encouraged and challenged and stirred toward obedience and toward uh, participating in the building of this kingdom that will never fail. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
I invite you to reflect uh, a little bit, just personally. Um, if you're the journaling type, write that down. If you're the verbal processor type, don't hesitate to share with uh, anybody.